like to <coughs> like to speak <coughs> about the context in <coughs> which to understand our meditation. The Christian mystic Master Eckhart <coughs> said in one of his sermons called the noble man or the noble woman. And for him the noble man or noble woman is a person who is concerned by spirituality. We call this person the inner, the inner one, the young one, the free one. And in opposition he speaks about the outer, the outer man or outer woman. He also speaks about the old one and the slave. So we see he makes a distinction between inner and outer, between freedom and slavery, between spiritual life and a profane life. In one sutra of the Buddha, there is a story which I believe can be understood in the same way. One monk was meditating, and in his meditation some doubts arose in his mind. Certainly a very bright monk, very intelligent. In his meditation some question arose. He was wondering if the world is, or the universe is, eternal or not. He was wondering if the world or the universe was limited or not. Also if the Buddha would still exist after his death or not. So I really wanted to inquire into very deep, important topics to get some understanding. And he thought that the Buddha had never given any explanation about that. As far as he could remember, he had never heard the Buddha speaking about those topics. So he thought, at the end of his meditation, he liked to go and see the Buddha and check with him, if he could give him some answer. So he went, bowed down respectfully to the Buddha, and asked those questions. And he said that if the Buddha could not answer, then he will leave the monastery. So that if the Buddha cannot answer those very important questions, there was no use for him to stay in the monastery to be a monk. So the Buddha <coughs> asked him, he said, Did I tell you come into my monastery and I will teach you about the universe, if it is limited or not? And the monk said, No. And the Buddha said, Did you come to me? He said, I will stay in your monastery if you can teach me about the universe is limited or not, or it is eternal or not. I said, no. I said, well, you see, you are like a man in a battlefield 
who has been hit by a poisonous arrow. And before now his friends and family, they gather around him and they want to call the doctor to pull out the arrow and try to save his life, try to, to cure him. And this man may stop them and say, no, first I want to know who has, uh, who has a warrior, who has uh, sent me this arrow. I want to know his family. I want to know how the bow was made and the string, which kind of, of material was used for the string. I want to know which kind of feather was used for the, for the arrow. <coughs> and the Buddha said, such a man would die before he even got the answer to all his questions. He said, you are like this, uh, like this uh, warrior. You will die before getting the answer to your question. And although there are opinions about the universe that it is eternal, or there are opinions about the universe that it is limited or unlimited, before anything there is birth or age and death. And I teach their cessation here and now. He told this monk, said, remember what I am teaching and what I am not teaching. I am teaching suffering, the origin of suffering, cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And why am I teaching that? Because that leads to freedom. And what am I not teaching? <coughs> I am not teaching about the universe, if it is eternal or not, it is limited or not. And why am I not teaching that? Because it doesn't lead to freedom. We see in this <coughs> formulation about suffering, the origin, cessation, and the path leading to cessation, that the Buddha was speaking about the Four Noble Truths. First teaching that he ever gave. It seemed that the preoccupation of this monk was for outer phenomena, for questioning, question of a scientist who want to discover the outer world. Now when the Buddha was uh, teaching the Four Noble Truths, when he said that what he is teaching is the Four Noble Truths and not about the universe, so if we look a little bit more closely about the Four Noble Truths, so what it is about? first of the noble suffering, the first of the four noble truths is the truth of suffering. So suffering is not birth, old age and death, that is one way. But suffering is not some material element, it's not like wood or like stone or like fire. Suffering you know, is an inner response to a situation. We may imagine that the same situation will bring happiness or suffering in different people. So the happiness or suffering is not in the situation, is not in the object, but is in, it is in the inner response from the people. Imagine that somebody is moved from his or her job and sent maybe to London. Some people will be very happy to be in a big city, and for some other it will be terrible. So it's not that the big city makes happiness or sorrow. It is the response from some people will be happy and some other will be suffering. 
Now we may imagine that if someone would be offered, or two persons would be offered a meal, very spicy, one person may like it very much and the other may even not eat it. So it is not that in the food itself there is some pleasing feeling or pleasing quality, it is in the response of the people. So when teaching about the truth of suffering, the Buddha is teaching about the inner response in different situations. That one may experience that as being painful, as an inner experience. When speaking about the truth of the origin of suffering, the Buddha speaks about confusion, the confused state of mind that will lead to a response which will be painful that we will call suffering. So it is due to confusion that we are led to experience some situation as being painful. In the truth of the origin of suffering, we may see a different type of confusion. Confusion or ignorance is not just a way of not knowing, actually it is a very creative process. Not that we just ignore maybe the name of the village nearby, that through the power of confusion and ignorance we are creating, building different realities which are not true, which are just illusory. The Chinese have an example, they say that the, the artist paints a tiger and then runs away. So that is really the work of ignorance, it's not just not knowing, it's a way of creating constantly situations that will bind us. We are creating every instant our own bondage. We may see in the way that we may be looking for, reaching out for some object, situation, person, then there is in this <coughs> desire, strong desire for this object, this person or this situation, there is there the work of the artist. There is a projection of some sense of satisfaction which we believe is in the situation, in the person, in the object, in the house that we really want. So there is a projection there, a creation of some satisfaction that now we are projected onto this person or this situation and now we try to get it. We try to get the satisfaction that we have been projecting. The French psychoanalyst Lacan said that what sustains or supports the desire is not the object, it's the fantasm, the illusion. That what feeds and what makes the desire appear, not never the object, never the situation, is what we believe, what we expect, satisfaction that we expect we will get from that is feeding the desire. Never the object, never the situation. Again, if that were true, then everybody would desire exactly the same thing. Everybody would desire exactly the same object, the same person, the same situation. So it's only because we are projecting satisfaction onto different situations, 
person, food, germ, that we are desiring different situations. So that our work of creativity of an artist, it is fine to be an artist, but there we are binding ourselves. Then when we are getting or not getting, when we are not getting what we wanted, then there is deep frustration. And when we get what we want, there may be first a satisfaction, usually so much a thought has been brought forth, therefore there is at least a sense of rest, now I have gotten what I wanted. But then the satisfaction is not lasting. Not that it has disappeared from the object, the situation of the person. That then the mind is not reacting, has not been projecting anymore the sense of satisfaction, now it has been projected somewhere else. So the Buddha explained this, the way that suffering is coming about, the origin is through confusion. Because we are confused about what we are, who we are, because we are confused about the world that we are projecting. Many different aspects, but one aspect that we are mainly projecting is satisfaction, and also we are projecting negatively the cause of our difficulties. We may also, not working with desire, but with aversion, then believe that the cause of our disagreement, the cause of our suffering, is in this person, in this situation, in this house, in this car, in whatever. Because we are projecting then the dissatisfaction in this situation. And now, we try to get rid of this situation, we try to get rid of this person, of this car. Because we believe then we'll get rid of this dissatisfaction. Again, it's just a work of projection due to confusion. Therefore, we may keep on changing the world around us, hoping that finally we'll get some satisfaction, deep satisfaction. But it's not by moving the world around us, that true satisfaction will be reached. It's only when we have the proper state of mind that satisfaction can be experienced. Not because we are dealing and transforming the outer world. So one aspect of the confusion when suffering is projecting onto the world outside satisfaction or on the contrary, dissatisfaction. But also a deeper type of confusion is the sense of self that we are grasping, holding on to at the center there where we are and everything is organized from this center, everything takes its own meaning from this center. When this confusion is deeply, we are grasping to this aspect and seeing the world through this point of view, that is a deep confusion and that brings even deeper suffering, more lasting suffering. As Shantideva said, I mentioned yesterday, that at the root of all suffering is a self-cherishing attitude. One is grasping to the self, now there is this master, the self. Now we are doing so much to please him, to please her. No one would ever make us do what the self can make us do. It's not possible. I don't believe even any master of slaves has been able to make a slave do what 
ourselves need us do every instant for satisfaction. So this sense of self that we are grasping to, that is a deeper root of confusion and that is a deeper root of suffering. When the great mystic Sufi Allah said, I am the truth, meaning I am God. Of course, it's not this I, very small I, self-centered. A person that he said, I am the truth, he was speaking something much vaster that could not be just limited to the sense of self that we are clinging to and this localization of centering within ourselves. So he was pointing to something much vaster. When we question the sense of self, as it is done in Buddhist tradition, often we may believe that it is something very Buddhist, and that it may be quite foreign or exotic, and that in Western tradition that is not done. But that is really a big mistake. I have mentioned here Sufi, of course Sufi is not really a Western tradition, but we would find in many Christian mystics exactly the same questioning. It is true that worldly people, wherever, will not question the notion of self, and that will be too much threatening for anyone to question the notion of self. Now, in other mystical tradition, the notion of self will be seen through, and if the notion of self is clinged to, there is no deeper, there is no inner experience, whatever the tradition may be cannot be a mystical experience, deep mystical experience, with the notion of self staying in the mystic. So the questioning there, although is made and expressed in a very specific way in the Buddhist tradition, it's not specific to the Buddhist tradition. Maybe in the Christian tradition the mystics would speak, and they would speak about very much about getting rid of the self, the person, or whatever, the church would maybe not go along with the mystics. There will be maybe there a line that the church will not will not cross. But with respect to inner experience, obviously there is no inner tradition, mystical tradition, where the sense of self can be kept, and then one would hope, expect, to have deep inner spiritual experience. I was watching the TV the other night and I saw Bill Clinton was in Oxford, I think, giving a lecture and there were question and answer. And he made a nice remark. He said when he was in South Africa, he met uh, Nelson Mandela, and he really wanted to show him the jail where he spent so many years, I think 12 years, so he went with Bill Clinton and showed him the jail where he spent so many years, and he said when he went out after 12 years being released, that he still had so much hatred for the white people, but in where, as he was walking down away from the jail, he, he saw that as long as he would hate them, they still will hate him and he decided not to have them anymore. So we can see here the sense of freedom, the wisdom that he had at this time, 
and the sense of freedom not clinging to this attitude. We see how confusion brings suffering. If you would have clinged to this hatred, certainly you would have found many reasons to hate them, but then you will have put himself in another kind of jail. Confusion brings suffering. With the cessation of confusion, there will be the cessation of suffering. In the third noble truth, the Buddha is teaching which is called the truth of cessation, truth of nirvana, or the unconditioned, or the unconditional freedom. can be taught and explained in many ways, but here I just explain it this way, that when confusion ceases, when there is no more confusion about the self, there is no more grasping, there is no more the reaction based on the notion of self, like hatred, desire, aversion, then confusion, having ceased, there is no grasping, there is no bondage anymore. And that will be the experience or the reaching of nirvana, of unconditioned freedom. So we may understand that explaining the suffering, so Buddha was speaking, Buddha speaking about inner experiences. When speaking about the root, the origin of suffering, he still was inquiring into the inner experiences, inner mental state, speaking about cessation in the same way, cessation of confusion. And when he explains the path leading to the cessation, again he will be speaking about mental attitude. So in this sense, when he told the monk not to be concerned with the world or the universe, but rather to be concerned with the Four Noble Truths. He was leaning him from being an outer man to be an inner man. Not to be concerned anymore with outer world, scientific truths, but rather to discover for himself his true reality by self-inquiry, by knowing himself deeply. So we see the same movement from outer fascination, outer questioning, coming to an inner questioning to know oneself deeply without any confusion. The way to come to this knowledge, understanding of oneself, deep inner knowledge, is through the fourth noble truth, the truth of the past. The truth of the past is explained sometimes in the combined practice of samatha and vipassana. Samatha is a practice of bringing the mind to some quietness, to some element, to some kind of stability that it can not always be disturbed by movement reaching out for this or that, that when the mind is quiet, then it can connect with situation, with experiences in a much deeper way. First we need a balanced mind and then the vipassana aspect of the practice. Vipassana which is inside but it also means 
seeing through, seeing through the veil of imagination, seeing through the veil of conceptualization, of confusion. This seeing through is coming about when one knows deeply, intimately, one's own experience. When one comes back to one's own experience with deep intimacy, within this intimacy there will be the space for deep understanding and wisdom. Only through this intimacy can wisdom arise. For bringing the mind to quietness, for the practice of samatha, there may be many different techniques. One may just pay attention, be mindful of breathing. One may recite mantras. One may keep in mind an image of the Buddha, for example, or any other form of bodhisattva. One may also just concentrate on the notion of space. Or one may also just pay attention to hearing, as we've been suggesting here. Just to the experience of hearing that may bring some balance in mind. That will help to develop a strong intimacy within ourselves, within our lives. When speaking about intimacy with the experiences, it is an, such an intimacy that does not leave room for two. It's not that the, this intimacy with, the, with our life, with our experience, does not leave room for any inhabitant of our experiences. Not that we will be there, there will be the sense of an experiencer experiencing something, a meditator meditating on something. This intimacy that we are developing through the practice of our meditation is such that there will be just experience in, in oneness, not in duality. When one knows something through a concept, when one knows something through an image, then it is not true intimacy because one is using something to know something else. If one knows through a concept, the concept is not the thing itself, so the concept is a means by which we can know something, then it's not true intimacy. It is not possible for us to discover our truth through any means. If we use a means, that will be in between, that will be something which will prevent the intimacy. Master Eckhart said, if you know God through a means, through means, you know the means but not God. So in this sense, 
there is no way that we can develop a deep understanding and knowledge of oneself if this knowledge or understanding is done through means. That will mean that we just know the means, but not truly ourselves. We are developing in our meditation little by little this sense of intimacy. When this intimacy is really experienced in oneness, no multiplicity, no duality, at such a time there is no room for a subject and an object. In whatever the experience is, there will be no splitting into a subject and the world. There will be no duality at this time. Just the intimacy of the experience. No subject, no object, no meditator, no meditator, no world. In this intimacy, anything experienced in this non-duality does not appear as being existing or not existing. Anything experienced within this intimacy does appear empty of any truth, of any true reality. The experience is arising and then within this arising of the experience, this experience is not experience as truly existing empty of any truth, of any true reality. Yet it does appear. Doesn't mean that nothing appears. So there is just experiences rising and disappearing completely empty of any true reality. So we have this aspect which is not a split, not separation, the quality best way to illustrate that from the text it is like a dream so if one has one sees a, a dream an elephant in a dream one can't say it is an elephant but one also cannot say there is nothing that there was no dream in the same sense in the experience one will not say that it's just a nothingness mind is just uh, just stopped there is no no life anymore one cannot say that, but one cannot say also that there is any true reality to whatever is appearing. So this aspect, which is united, not separated, of appearance and emptiness. And that's not because one is thinking about it. One is just, when some experience arises, one is suddenly trying to project onto that notion of emptiness, something is arising there, oh that is empty, that is empty, that is just another concept. 
is only because of the intimacy within the experience itself. That the emptiness and the appearing aspect, they just arise naturally, together. Now in this intimacy, this absence of duality, in this absence of object and subject, there is neither any outer and inner. One cannot speak about outer and inner. Outer with respect to what? Inner to res- with respect to what? So it is to say that maybe the noble woman or noble man, the true noble woman, true noble man, they are neither inner or outer man or woman. So exactly at this experience, when outer and inner do not make sense anymore, that maybe one is a true noble man or true noble woman. This double aspect, if you wish, of the reality, the appearing aspect and the empty aspect, they are the ground for two types of practice. One practice serving the aspect of emptiness is a wisdom aspect, is what we are cultivating when we are practicing meditation on the nature of the mind. There we are, not aiming at, we have spoken about this impossibility to aim at, but there we are cultivating this intimacy which will lead to the understanding, realization of this emptiness aspect. That will help not to grasp anymore, and within that practice we are more serving the empty aspect. The appearing aspect is what we are practicing when we practice compassion. So respecting those two aspects of reality, we will develop compassion and we will develop wisdom. Any practice in the Tibetan tradition has to include those two aspects. One without the other will not be a balanced path that what we are <coughs> practicing in our retreat. Shantideva, which I quote last night, said, if, I want, if one wants to make oneself and other happy, when practicing self for others. So the aim of the practice is to make oneself happy and other happy. Those two aspects. He said that for our own freedom, that is the aspect of wisdom which is developed, and for the sake of others, that is the compassion aspect which is developed. So when we are practicing compassion, is for the happiness of others. When we are practicing wisdom, is for our own sake. Quite a few years ago in Bodh Gaya, 
the 70s, some hippie went to see the Dalai Lama. And they thought he must have such a boring life, he's a monk, and the hippie had such a beautiful life at the time. So they thought, how boring it must be. They asked him, they were quite often, they said, well, you know, what, what is the meaning of your life and what, what are you looking for in being a monk like that? And uh, he said, well, it's to be happy and make others happy. So that seems to be a very simple answer. But for the Dalai Lama, it was very obvious that he had in mind those two aspects, developing compassion and developing wisdom. Developing wisdom was for his own happiness, and developing compassion was for the happiness of, of others. So in the practice, those two aspects are always joined together, combined together. The understanding of the Four Noble Truths is the understanding of the teaching of the Buddha, and it is also the understanding of our true nature. In the story of the awakening of Sariputra, it's quite interesting, he said that Sutra, they tell the story of Sariputra, he said that Actually, with Mongaryana, they were very, they had a very strong link together. They were both born uh, in village nearby, exactly at the same day. And it seems that uh, they live nearly like twins, although they are not real twins, but they live really very close to each other. So when they will go and play together, and when they were uh, younger, they would assist to a festival. Every year there was a festival. It was near Rajagira. And at this time they had a festival, three days festival for the god of the mountain. And for three days they would see many manifestations, certainly very entertaining. And at this time maybe they were about 20 years old. They were seated there in a nice uh, platform that uh, the noble people would use there. And they were looking at all those beautiful performances. The first day they were happy, and the second day also they enjoyed a lot, and the third morning, Mongana was not so happy. And Sariputra looked at him and said, what's the matter? He said, well, you know, in hundred years there will be no one left of all of us there. So what really is it about all this making uh, a big festival and, and enjoying? He said, we will all die. And Sariputra was exactly in the same frame of mind, so they decided to look for a solution. So they left their home and they, uh, where they went looking for a teacher. But finally they found one and this teacher started to teach them about concentration, about samatha. So very quickly they were able to reach very deep state of concentration, very quiet in their mind, very deeply. And then they went to the teacher and they asked, now, what next? And the teacher said, I have nothing else to teach you. That's all what I can teach you. So they were not pleased with that. They left and they went to look all over India to look for another teacher who could help them 
not just to concentrate the mind very deeply, but to reach true freedom. And they were looking all over and they did not find anyone. So they came back to their own village and they decided that they would still keep on looking as in if one of the two would find, he would immediately go and tell the other one. One morning Sariputra was going through the village and he saw a monk walking very peacefully and he was very impressed by this monk. So that this monk had the answer that he was looking for. <coughs> Went to the monk and asked him, said, Who is your teacher and what does he teach? And he said, Well, my teacher is a Buddha. And he teaches that for whatever arises through causes, he teaches the causes. And whatever disappears or ceases through causes, he is teaching the causes. And Sariputra reach at this time the first stage of awakening. So what was this monk actually teaching there? What was he reporting? He was speaking about the Four Noble Truths. said whatever arises from causes, so suffering arises from causes, and what ceases through causes, and that cessation is ceasing through the past. So Sariputra must have been very bright. He understood immediately and reached the first stage of awakening. Was, was very pleased and immediately went to Mongayana to tell him what he had discovered and when Mongayana saw him coming he knew that Sariputra had found the answer he just saw that something had deeply changed within Sariputra and Sariputra told him what had happened so when he reported the sentence that this monk had said then immediately he reached the first stage of the weekend now they decided to go on and, and study with the Buddha a bit deeper, but first they wanted to see the teacher and ask him if he would come along with them to study with the Buddha. A very respectful way for them to deal with their own teacher. So they went to him and they said that they had found and heard about this beautiful teacher, who was the Buddha Gautama, and that if he would like to come with them to, to study with him, that they would be most welcome. But he said he could not come. He had so many and uh, 500 students, if he would go there, they would all leave him because they would know that he is not the ultimate teacher. They would all also go to the Buddha. So he said, no, I can't go. So he stayed there where he was and Saiputra and Morgana went to the Buddha. When the Buddha saw them coming from far away, he was, of course, surrounded with, by a few monks, elder monks, and he, he told them, he said, now, my two main disciples are coming. He had never met them before. So some of his disciples around were a little bit jealous. So that, you know, those are coming, they are completely new, and he is the Buddha, and I is telling that my two main disciples are coming. And the Buddha explained why um, they were to be his two main disciples, because in previous life they had seen a previous Buddha and seen the two main disciples there they decided that they wanted to stay close to a Buddha in order to help him in his last life when he will be awakened. And therefore, due to many lives of deep practice and compassion, now they were, the, the time was come for them to be main disciples of the Buddha Gautama. So came to him and they started to practice meditation under the guidance of the Buddha. And Morgana awakened in one week of practice, and Sariputra in two weeks. 
So in the text, the Visayaputra is always presented as the brightest of all the disciples of the Buddha. So the commentator were wondering why why it took so long to him to awaken. You know, it took two weeks, and Bodhgana only had needed one week to awaken. So why such a bright mind as Sariputra needed so long? So they explained, they say, well, if an ordinary man or woman travels, preparations are not so big, so they, they can start very quickly, very easily. But when a king is starting, the preparation is much longer, therefore take more time. So that's why Sariputra needed more time to awaken than uh, Modgayana. So we may understand that through the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, there of course was very short uh, uh, teaching, then they really could realize their own nature and awaken. But the understanding of the Four Noble Truths is nothing else than the understanding of our true nature, nature of our suffering, the manifestation, and the unconditioned nature of our true nature. So what we are practicing in our meditation on the nature of mind is to inquire into, to develop this intimacy that we can realize ultimately our true nature. Just by the development of this intimacy within ourselves. So we may just sit in silence for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.